0: Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa.
1: And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers.
0: Welcome to Rebel Yell, a new series from Art Laws that highlights young and emerging artists and creators who are pushing boundaries in new media and changing the face of our digital landscape.
1: Zach James is the founder of Animem Studios, and creator of one of YouTube's most successful and longest-running animated series, Yo Mama, a channel that's garnered over 8 million subscribers across all platforms and over 2 billion views. Considering the long-standing success of the franchise, many people are unaware that the show's creator is an autistic man who was born with nonverbal autism, He was never supposed to speak, let alone pioneer such phenomenal new media success.
0: Originally gaining popularity as Outback Zach, Zach James started off as a YouTuber who published viral videos out of his grandparents' trailer. Sensing an opportunity on the growing YouTube platform, Zach combined an early love for cartoons with his own boundary-pushing comedy to create one of the internet's most successful franchises, now celebrating its 10th year anniversary. And now... Zach is confronting tech giants like YouTube and Facebook. As algorithms continue to shift in favor of the corporations, Zach is fighting back to ensure that they become more transparent and that the future of digital media is inclusive of all voices.
1: We spoke to Zach about this and much more, including his new dive into rap. We welcome Zach James to Art Laws. So, Zach, you were born with nonverbal autism. The prognosis was that you weren't ever supposed to talk. And now you're an on camera YouTube influencer with millions of followers across all platforms. How did you overcome the inability to speak as a child and ultimately embrace your autism?
2: You know, it's a very interesting question because I think it would present the idea of recognizing a challenge and then overcoming that challenge with the intent of overcoming that challenge. But the reality is is that my brain processes information differently. I don't think in words. I think in colors and numbers and patterns and things of that nature. And what had happened for me was through my ability to recognize patterns, I had moved around so much as a child that I began to recognize the pattern of speaking what made English fluid, what allowed uh, verbal communication to appear fluidly to me. And so it was more so almost like a puzzle. I've always enjoyed puzzles, always enjoyed uh, solving a puzzle. And it eventually wasn't more so a challenge, but just a puzzle that took a little while longer to solve. And all I needed was more pieces to uh, solve that puzzle with.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that's so interesting because I think there are many misconceptions about autism and some see it as a disability. It's been labeled that and others see it as a gift. And as you just said, a difference. So what would you tell parents with autistic kids about the various misperceptions from your experience?
2: Well, I will say it's One of these uh, topics that's difficult to generalize because autism is recognized as a spectrum. And so what I might perceive or what I might give advice on wouldn't necessarily apply to everybody on that spectrum. But what I would say is it seems that autistic people often have what we call hyperfixations or hyperfocus. And it's one of those things that should be more so encouraged as opposed to discouraged. When you hyperfocus on something, it doesn't necessarily stop you from being able to focus on anything else. If anything, it's a channel that allows you to focus on more. For example, if someone's really into a particular collection and they love to collect that thing, you wouldn't necessarily want to discourage if anything you want to encourage it more with the idea that by being more involved into this hobby or this lifestyle that they have, they'll want to communicate about it more and when you're into a topic or an interest or a hobby and you're really into it and you want to communicate about it more then that will cause you to focus on how to communicate that as well so let someone hyperfocus and know that the avenue of hyperfocusing will allow new focuses to come in
0: right what was it like i mean just being a kid with this what was your family life
2: like well my upbringing is definitely Much different than most people. I can't necessarily go into all the details because of my stepfather's sensitive career. He worked in telecommunications. But I will say I grew up around the world. I grew up in two dozen countries rapidly over the course of 10 to 11 years. I moved probably 40 to 50 some odd times before I turned 18. And so my upbringing with autism was basically always being exposed to new information new languages, new cultures, new environments, a new change of routine all the time. And if you're familiar with autism, a change in routine is not necessarily ideal for somebody like me, but it wasn't something I could change as a child. It's something I had to deal with. And though it wasn't fun at first, over the years, that change in routine has allowed my mind to develop a routine as it relates to changing routines. And it's because of those changes and that amount of information that my brain processed so young, so quick through the autism sphere, if you will, I've been able to learn so much as a child and adapt so well as an adult.
0: That's interesting because you'd have to imagine all of these different languages and symbols when you're in different countries. I mean, to first of all, to be nonverbal autism and then having all these things thrown at you was probably very difficult, I imagine.
2: It was though there was definitely what I would refer to as universal languages that you start to pick up on really quick, body language being one of them, tonality being another thing. So when you recognize these languages, uh, they're not necessarily rooted in what's being said, but how it's being said and how someone's reacting to how they're saying it or what's being said to them, you're able to quickly adapt and understand your environments, even if you don't know the language that someone is speaking. Right. Right.
1: I mean, that's so interesting because that's another example of how it's about a difference and processing things differently. And again, maybe working for you to form the artist that you've become over the years. And to that note, I'm curious, was art something that inspired you as a child?
2: Uh, Yes. Yes, very much so. Again, I think in patterns and colors. So it was much easier for me to translate that onto paper as opposed to translating that into words and then writing the words on paper. So I was very much fascinated by drawings and uh, creating artwork, building with Legos, things of that nature because my stepfather's job, I was often exposed to animation channels really early on in countries where they didn't necessarily have that. So even if I didn't understand what the cartoon character was saying, visually, I could process it quicker. And there was something unique about seeing a cartoon versus seeing something that was live action, because you understand the deliberate translation of a cartoon and how the characters are expressing their feelings. And you start to notice, oh, this object has a slightly different shade of color because it's not the background, but it's going to be an animated object. And that goes into a whole different sphere of animation. But that's something that you learn a lot, or at least I learned a lot as an autistic child watching a lot of animation. And it really fascinated me from many different perspectives.
0: That's cool. What cartoons were you watching? Do you remember?
2: Yes, I grew up on a lot of Hanna-Barbera stuff, Cartoon Network, Funny enough, one of my uh, mentors is uh, Fred Seibert. He was the uh, president of Hanna-Barbera that turned it into Cartoon Network. And so I speak with him from time to time. And uh, ironically, it was his channel, his Cartoon Network channel that got me exposed to animation. He basically took the Hanna-Barbera cartoons and turned it into a Cartoon Network. And I grew up on things like Scooby-Doo and Yogi Bear and then Laugh Olympics, and then Plastic Man, which was a DC comic uh, animated series that Hanna-Barbera had adapted early on. And uh, it was a lot of things of that nature, along with Disney and Nickelodeon that I grew up on.
0: That's very cool. I think of these animated shows and the emotions are so overt in a way in these kind of cartoons. And was that something, did you learn in some regard, emotion through that or communication through these cartoons?
2: I would... Say yes, there's probably some foundation that I picked up on, especially when it came to recreating characters' expressions. But I would also say that it was my exposure to so many different individuals and types of people that I began to learn more about emotions and the expression of emotions, and even how to pick up on a lie. You know, you can tell when someone's lying through their facial expressions and how their eyes move. And that was something I picked up pretty early on, only because I had met so many people in my life.
1: That's so cool. That is really interesting to me. So do you remember your first artistic endeavor as a child and sort of from watching all these cartoons where you kind of went with that and-
2: yeah, everything from drawing to uh we moved a lot, so we had a lot of cardboard boxes. So I used to take these cardboard boxes and cut them down and repiece them together into sets that I would use to play with my toys. I used to take the um you know, when you would buy a toy, you would have a lot of material that came with the packaging, like the the twisty things that would keep the toy connected to the box. And I got to the point where I had collected so many of these, I started to create my own toys out of those and use molding, putty, and things of that nature to form like a body around a skeleton that I made out of these twisty ties. So it started from creating sets to creating my own toys, building things out of Legos, doing stop motion Lego movies, drawing, painting, pretty much anything I can get my hands on and manipulate and play around with.
0: That's very cool. At what point now did you discover YouTube? It seems like you created this Outback Zach and you began publishing videos. Was that something that came out of this art creation or was that something
2: completely different? The story behind that was I always knew what YouTube was as soon as it became a thing. Everybody in my school knew what it was. And I've always had the idea of making videos, but because I came from such a private life and... I was taught to be very aware of how we put things on the internet and just the vulnerabilities of that. I was hesitant to make videos. And then I was at a crossroad in my life where I had a lot of different opportunities. I had full ride scholarships to study law. Uh, Naval Academy had accepted me. So I had that as a possibility. I was groomed for politics, things of that nature. And I felt a little bit of pressure trying to decide what my next eight to 10 years was going to look like. But I looked over, metaphorically speaking, I looked over and I had a friend of mine from school, a couple of years younger than me, who was making money off of YouTube. He was one of the first YouTube partners. And I saw everything that he was doing, everything from web design to merchandising and shipping the merchandising out, engaging with fans, creating video content, things of that nature. And I would say I had the forethought where it, occurred to me that YouTube would be the opportunity of opportunities. I knew that I could go in and not only enjoy doing this and put every skill and asset that I have to use, but I could set up a career path that would be more fruitful for me versus spending eight to 10 years of studying and interning somewhere, and then hopefully having a career path after that.
0: Right. How did your family feel about that?
2: Well... After it became clear that I had, and I rarely would say this, I always say it because the schools told my parents this, and my parents told me this. But after it became clear that I had one of the highest cues that they ever recorded, my parents started to refer to me as their genius, you know, he's a genius, you're a genius. And they always said, like, Zach, you're a genius, you're smarter than us. Well, I think they didn't realize that was going to be used one day as an argument. Because when they said, why would you do YouTube? What's wrong with you? You have all these opportunities. What's wrong with you? And I said, well, I'm a genius. And maybe I'm seeing something that you simply don't see. And um, (laughs) you know, I understand the reaction and things of that nature. And at that point, my parents were getting ready to make a move. And I didn't really want to deal with a new move. So my parents gave me the option to also move in with my grandparents, which is a place I would go and visit a lot. So it was a familiar environment for me. So I took that opportunity, moved in with my grandparents, and that's where I had focused on YouTube for literally just a year and a half without Mm -hmm. having a social life.
1: So who was this character, Outback Zach, and what did he represent?
2: So I, even though you don't hear it today, uh, get a little alcohol in me or get me a little excited. I do have an accent that does come out pretty heavily. Um, (laughs) It's very mixed from living around the world. And I'm, really private about my life. So no one knows where I'm born. And I do that for security reasons. It's one of those pieces of information that if it got out there, people could probably find out where I live, things of that nature. But having that nickname, it came from high school. A lot of people gave me that nickname. And so I figured that would be a nickname I would just run with on the internet, ambiguous enough to make it where no one could find my actual identity if you will, if something was to happen, you know, make the wrong group upset or anything of that nature. And then at that time, it was just a way for me to overexpress or exaggerate aspects of my personalities. Whether it was me being goofy and funny, I would over exaggerate that side of me. If it was me being upset or angry, I would over-exaggerate that side of me as well. So it was just an over-exaggeration of everything to where I could make things that I felt was satirical in nature without people taking it serious. Though I still found that a lot of people took me a little too serious and that made me step away from that character altogether.
0: Did you tell your friends at school about this character, about these videos, or was it something you put out there and just let the world discover on
2: its own? A mix of both. People had known that I was looking at YouTube pretty seriously. People knew where that came from because we had a friend in high school that was already making a career on YouTube. He was already one of the top 100 YouTubers at the time. Right. Not everyone thought it would work out, but I had a lot of people that encouraged me and had fun with me as well. And then I took off on YouTube pretty quick. I ended up making a living on YouTube within 90 days. And by the end of the year, I was already making six figures.
1: All through this character? Yes. Wow. So for our listeners, Tell us maybe a little more about this character and what these videos were like. I know they're very comedic and different aspects of yourself and exaggerations, but maybe some of the kind of themes.
2: Well, I will say this is definitely in a point of time where I believe a lot of the comedy that people express was with the idea that it was something that would be funny years later. I do prescribe to the philosophy of what comedy is, and that is comedy is rooted from the ability to move past tragedy. What is tragic today will be comedic tomorrow. And as society has definitely become more aware of itself in this past decade, it's become really clear that a lot of things that we thought would be funny is not funny anymore because there's still a lot of tragic things that happen with different groups in our society. But with that being said, As a 19-year-old, the character was just uh, a rant. I would rant. I would bitch, moan, and complain. That was a tagline of mine. I basically yelled in the bathroom. And there was no reason for the bathroom other than I didn't have a tripod. I didn't want to pay for a tripod. So I just put a camera in the medicine cabinet of my bathroom. And I think it became its own art form because the idea of art is something that will make you question something. And not necessarily give you an answer right away. And it caused a lot of people to question, why is this guy yelling in the bathroom? I mean, (laughs) not why is he yelling, but why is it in the bathroom? And it became a thing of mine to just always be in the bathroom when I filmed, uh, regardless of where I filmed. And I think that caught a lot of people's attention. But again, it was a character I did step away from after I had some industry meetings, uh, multi-channel networks like Machinima, Maker Studio, Where it's becoming a thing. These were uh, companies that would hire a bunch of YouTubers and use our data and our numbers as a way to pitch us to advertisers and other projects. And I was brought in for a really big meeting. I was one of the first creators brought into Machinima for a meeting, and they wanted my sense of direction for the company. And after that meeting, one of the gentlemen pulled me aside and said, You know, you're much different than I thought you would be. I thought you would have yelled the entire meeting. (laughs) And I was like, this is a joke, right? And he's like, no, no, I really thought you were this way. And it became clear to me that this was not going to be a healthy impression to keep up throughout the industry.
0: Were there any rants that you regret looking back? Anything that this character said or did that you feel is out of line with sort of how you are currently?
2: No, I think there's definitely stuff that could be taken out of context and flipped around pretty easily, but. Everything I ever done was always within context of what else was going on in the video. So a lot of people might be wondering, why is this guy yelling about Justin Bieber? Well, it was not just a thing to kind of make fun of Justin Bieber, but there was a contextualization to the character and to the history of the internet and the way that I had engaged with another content creator. So nothing that I would personally feel bad or sorry about because I was always having that forethought ahead of time. Right. But I could definitely see, and I've had people, not necessarily, let me put it this way, when you make a certain group of people upset on the internet, they'll sometimes try to find your hypocrisy and use it against you. And they tried that with me without any progress, because everything I ever said or did worked well within the context. And it wasn't anything that you could just kind of take out and use against me years later. So I tried my best to make sure it was content like that, but it got to a point where I felt like I was maturing more than the character allowed me to demonstrate on camera.
1: So then how did you transition to animation from this work?
2: It wasn't necessarily an overnight thing. It was something I already started doing about mid-2011, so about a year and a half after I started doing YouTube. And... Then I had made the full switch over about a year or two later. But basically, I had moved out to Los Angeles and moved in with a couple of YouTubers, very common thing to do. And one of those YouTubers had a partnership with BBC to create animated music videos. He had specialized in music parodies. And he really loved animation a lot, but he couldn't make financial sense out of it after the partnership was done and he wanted to continue to do animation. Well, here I am smoking weed every night watching cartoons and not just watching, but going into the details of what it takes to make this cartoon. How's the animation style different? What type of techniques was used, et cetera. So he felt confident to come to me with this resource, this asset, this animator and say, look, I have an animator. This is how much money it costs to create a cartoon per minute. And if you have an idea, I'd love to go in on the idea with you. And I said, okay, well, why does it have to be a minute? Why can't it be for 15-second videos? And it quickly snowballed into animated Yamama jokes. And from there, it was just a very natural progression to not only stick with animation, but to push it further. Because I had a certain mind, again, that allows me to look at things like a puzzle and solve them over and over again. So working with an animation team isn't just about hiring animators, it's about hiring the right creatives that know how to fit and work with each other. And is not a traditional studio setting, but requires you to be at home, be creative, have fun, but also have the discipline to sit down and do your work. And then also requires me to recognize your talents as an individual and have them work with other individual talents in a way that you wouldn't see in the studio.
0: It's interesting you had the foresight to do the 14, 15-second videos as our attention spans are getting smaller and smaller. Was that a conscious decision? Did you see people moving in that direction?
2: Um, Yes and no. It was more so the idea of instead of trying to make one video that's one minute long and get paid for half a million views on that video, I figured why not create four 15-second videos that could get half a million views each and get four times the amount of revenue. Mm -hmm. But there was definitely the notion that attention spans were short. As a lot of people may know, YouTube did switch over to a watch time algorithm that dictated that a minute is worth less than 10 minutes. So if I watch a one minute video, uh, even though it's a view, that view is worth less than a video that gets 10 minutes of views. And it just so happened that when they switched over, we already started to compilate our cartoons into five, 10-minute videos, and that's when we really took off as a channel. So it was a mix of a couple of different things that always played into our favor.
1: So Mm -hmm. this first animation of yours was Yo Mama, the Yo Mama series. And tell us a little bit about what the intention was behind this series, because it truly took off, and you've now got millions of viewers across all platforms.
2: Yeah. So the intention was a few things. One, how can we create a sustainable creative project? So it had to make financial sense. And to make financial sense is something you have to make production sense out of it. So we figured we could have reoccurring characters. We will be able to build up a library of assets that we could dip back into over time. But it was also the idea of creating a community-driven show. So all of our jokes are fan-submitted jokes. And then we would display the comment on the video or at the end of the video. And then we took it a step further. And based off of how we acted, we were very much self-aware. But based off of how we acted, we knew that the next generation of YouTubers and content creators that were going to come in was going to kind of portray themselves as douchebags. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And we wanted to create a parody of that and a parody of ourselves. And we thought, okay, what type of douchebag would tell your mama jokes and think they're funny? Probably some <laughs> frat guy who never outgrew his frat face, someone that's over-exaggerating everything he yells and screams. And it's got to be somebody you can kind of look at and ask, is he serious or is he not serious? The jokes quickly went from being a thing about your mama jokes to being about the guy who tells the your mama jokes.
1: Oh, right. Interesting. It took a turn so it was sort of a satire parody of itself it sounds like
2: yes very much so it's one of those things that maybe you don't get or understand you know by looking at one joke but when you sit down and watch the compilation of these things you realize oh this is an animated youtuber and they're self-aware of what they're doing here and it's definitely making fun of the jake paul and logan paul type of characters. Even though they weren't around at that time, they definitely end up kind of growing into our own cartoon character over time.
1: So Yo Mama has also become more political over time with Donald Trump as a character and Donald Trump jokes. Do you see that content appealing to both sides of the aisle?
2: For me, so it's, it's interesting because I think when you look at just from a surface level perspective, you might think, oh, it just you know, became political over time. But very early on, during the inception of Umama, I was very clear on the direction of, look, I know MTV did this series, but I need everyone to take a step back and look at the first 90 seconds of season one, episode one, and what they did in the series. And it's not something that a lot of people know, but just for context, MTV had a Umama series where they pulled people from the quote unquote hood or parts of like New York City, Los Angeles County, Atlanta, Georgia, and have them compete in Yamama battle rounds where they told their best Yamama jokes at each other. But the first joke within 90 seconds of the show was about how black someone's skin was. It wasn't even about the Yamama joke itself. It was about two black people making fun of each other for how black they were. And I know that was the big tonality set for the Yamama joke culture. And going into this, I was very clear of that. Look, everybody involved in this project is a white man. We're not going to create an animated black character. We're not going to put this in the hood. We're just going to whitewash this. We're going to do this strictly from the perspective of our own sense of who we are and what we know as white people. And that right off the bat really made a lot of people upset because they wanted Yamamas still black jokes. They wanted other type of jokes that I personally did not feel comfortable doing, not saying whether or not they're right or wrong. But with my team at the time and who I am and my identity as a human being, uh, it wasn't my voice to utilize. And over time, when you're dealing with the world and seeing how the world's evolving and changing, you got someone like Donald Trump that appears at the end of the day, it's not really a political thing, more so wow, this guy truly is a character and it's almost impossible to ignore. And I think with a lot of our jokes, some people would watch these jokes, even Trump fans, and will kind of laugh at them because they see that we're, we're making fun of a topic and not necessarily disagreeing with the topic per se. And over time, we did make fun of Trump a bit more. It wasn't from a political standpoint, but more so Trump as a person.
0: Right.
1: Is he still well, populating these now that he's not in office?
2: Yeah, we still utilize them in a few different ways. There's just something about his character as a trope that's really funny, fun mm-hmm. to dive into.
0: In terms of uh, this franchise has obviously been around for 10 years. It's celebrating its 10-year anniversary. And I read somewhere where you called it the cockroach of YouTube in the idea that nothing can kill it, that you can keep going on. Why do you think this is essentially something that has been so successful for 10 years and how do you see it evolving?
2: So your mama has a very interesting life cycle with a fan base. And I see this happen with a lot of other properties like Pokemon or Family Guy. You go into it and you like it. And then there's a phase in your life where you don't like it. You think you're too cool for it. And then you graduate from high school, you go to college and you might start smoking a little bit of weed or something like that. And then you go back and you watch it again for nostalgic purposes, but then you realize, well, wait a second. This wasn't made for me as a kid. This was made for me as an adult film-style audience member. And because of that, it allows a lot of replay value over the years. It allows a lot of nostalgic factors to play into uh, reliving those moments and rediscovering jokes that maybe you didn't even catch on as a kid. And what we're doing now is... We've always said internally that Yomama is almost like a giant pilot episode where we're just slowly over time building out our world, building out the characters, fleshing out new characters, and getting a sense of who they are, and what their personalities are. And our next step is to take those characters away from the Yomama format and explore them in new formats, whether those are animated rap battles, which is something that we're working on right now, or an um, episodic series called Joe Mama, which puts the show within the show. And it's all about Brody Fox, who he is, where does he really come from, who his parents really are. Because in our show, Brody's actually raised by two gay dads. He doesn't know who his mom is, doesn't know who his biological father is. And so there's a lot of lore and history behind these characters that we haven't explored yet. And we want to explore in a more episodic series.
0: How has this main character sort of changed with the times? I'm curious, in terms of at least the Yo Mama franchise.
2: I will say that he definitely found his comfort zone. His exaggeration is still there, but his approach and tonality is much smoother. And that's something that you would see with a lot of YouTubers. You often see him defend certain aspects or qualities or things in life that maybe you wouldn't have seen him defend beforehand. And you get a sense that he's a bit more mature over time because of how he handles certain situations versus the way that he did uh, years ago. So we definitely he used to say a uh, bitch a lot in the early episodes, and then you can see him scale back on that over time and not use that word anymore.
0: Right, right. It's funny, you know, Robin and I just spoke to a painter who has been painting for many, many decades, and cancel culture has been on his mind, even as he's become so established. And I'm just wondering with this, climate of cancel culture, do you approach your animation differently these days?
2: Not necessarily. I think it's one of those things where because we are animation, it's understood that we're diving into topics, not with a sense of let's be ultra serious about it, or it's meant to be taken serious. Though there are things that we are aware of a bit more when it comes to the way that we write to be a bit more inclusive. So like, we wouldn't necessarily make a joke about mental health just to make a joke about mental health. Like for example, we had this devil character and we wanted the devil to be put into a mental hospital because there was a trope of people that go to mental hospitals that say they hear the devil, but we did a lot of research and we made sure that any sort of, um, and I don't know it off the top of my head, but anything that we did utilize as it relates to terminology was more appropriate and more in line with what was actually credible versus using blanket statements and we often use characters that are simply not characters you would look up to. We call them like the Cartman of our series because Cartman from South Park can say and get away with a lot of things, Mm -hmm. not because it's there to be funny or, well, I mean, it's there to be funny, but not because they want to write that in to get a point across, but they write it in knowing that Cartman's not the ideal character to follow. He's not someone to look up to. And We have characters like that, that are representations of people in society that you don't want to look up to, or you don't want any association with, and we're able to utilize the vastness of our characters and their personalities as a way to create conflict and jumping off points and moments that we can laugh about, but also reflect on as well.
1: So in a way, it sounds like you're trying to shed light on certain cultural, societal issues that are going on, or just characteristics. Would you say that's accurate?
2: Yes, because we do have a character that we name Karen as American Mother Karen. And she has a lot of these uh, tropes that we make fun of that the world kind of makes fun of as it relates to Americans. But we use her as a way to talk about racial stereotypes and stuff that we don't agree with. And because of the way we're able to utilize that character, people can laugh at the things that we're trying to make fun of and recognize that we're laughing at it because it's not something. That's to be tolerated.
1: Mm -hmm. So tell us a little more about Animeme, your animation studio, what kinds of new projects you're working on, because we also understand you've assembled this incredible team over the years, and we'd love to learn about all of that.
2: Yes. So Animeme is uh, short for animated memes, and uh, it's basically our ideas that we animate viral content. And it's content that we own. So we don't really do service work for any other studios or any projects. This is stuff that we want to create in-house. And for us, um, Yo Mama's our flagship series. And so that's something that we can dive back into and know will be there for us as a big pillar. But we try our best to explore different ideas and concepts and other things that would make us have fun. So one of the things that we're doing right now is we recognize there's an emerging video game called Friday Night Funkin'. Think of it as a rap battle game mixed with Dance Dance Revolution, the same game mechanics with the arrows flying up on screen, but mixed in with music. Mm -hmm. And because of the way this game has been developed and the team behind the game are a bunch of artists from Newgrounds, a uh, a, uh, old school website that's been around and still around today, It's a haven for artists to animators to test out new cartoons that they're working on. Because of their nature and where they come from, they're very much into the fandom and having a big community, and they make their assets readily available for fans. So these fans have now taken the game, fell in love with it, and they created a bunch of modifications to the game. They add their own characters to the game. And it recently raised $2 million on Kickstarter. It's going to be ported over to Nintendo Switch early next year. And it's very popular today, but we know it's going to explode in popularity throughout the rest of the year. And so that's one of us saying basically, okay, there's a trend here. There's a big fandom here. We should try to tap into it. And then another part of us go, okay, well, how do we do this and do it in a way where we can exemplify our characters like Brody Fox. So what we're doing is we're taking characters from this game. We're taking characters from the fandom, the mod community, as we would call them. And we're pairing them up in rap battles against our own characters that we have from within our studio. And it allows us to explore music. It allows us to take a game that's not necessarily lyric based, but more so music and sound based And it allows us to put lyrics on top of that element and and show that we can take something and take it further. And that's basically what we're working on over the next few months is a series of animated rap battles that come out every week uh, with original music, original lyrics against our original characters, but also pays homage to the game's characters and the fans' characters.
0: It sounds very, very cool. You, know, you posted this video, which I loved, and it showed everybody on your team. And it seemed to me that it's like this one big family and you've created this family Of people from animators, editors, voiceover actors, as you're expanding your team, you you must be like. What qualities do you look for when you choose a collaborator?
2: It's got to be someone I can get along with. So, in a lot of ways, it's got to be someone that I can have a natural friendship with. Matter of fact, I recently hired a good friend of mine to be one of our writers for the music, but he's a friend of mine that I'm known for probably six or seven years now, if not longer. And we've always played around with different music and rap and things of that nature just to have fun with. And he always encouraged me to explore that aspect of my life. And that's something I started to do a bit more in these last six months. And so when I said I wanted to do this project, I recognized that we needed at least one more writer that could really help us in a certain way, bring in a new sense of ideas, a different eye for things, a different ear for things, and someone that had experience. And when I brought him on board, uh, he just naturally clicked with everybody. Very humble, very nice person, knows how to give his two cents, knows how to take no for an answer like, hey, you know, not necessarily a big fan of that idea, but could also humbly let somebody else know his input as well. And it's got to be people that are comfortable with themselves and know who they are. That doesn't necessarily mean you always have to have a good day it just means that you have to understand yourself as a human being you have to know what issues it is that you're dealing with in life because we all deal with issues and understand how to separate those issues from the workplace but also be honest about the issues you're going through so that we can provide a healthy environment for you to work in
1: sounds great i want to work there it's <laughs> it's a good work environment it sounds like so what are some other goals beyond this new project for anime and and animation in general?
2: Well, it wasn't necessarily a goal that I would have came up with on my own, but it's something that the industry has forced me to make as a goal. Without naming names, we're going into too much details. The industry has turned into a machine. There are agencies that now dictate who is an influencer, who's not an influencer, who gets invited to conventions, who doesn't get invited to conventions because they're trying to sell their sponsorships and their ad packages. And it's gotten to this point now where you have to fit a certain criteria in order to progress into this industry. Unless, of course, you can hit a certain metric of viralness, which is honestly hitting the lottery. So, What
0: is is this criteria? I'm just curious. Do you happen to know?
2: Yeah. So this is how it relates to me. It, It goes into this goal that I now have. So originally, I just wanted to be behind the scenes and just focus on a product that could live without my name being attached to it or without my face being attached to it. But because of how these agencies now operate, no one's going to care about a cartoon like your mama or anything else I make unless people care about me. And because of that, I am now forced to be an on-camera personality again. I have to now put myself out there. I now have to have fans follow me, know where my social media links are at, things of that nature. So instead of trying to grow a Yamama brand or instead of trying to grow uh, the studio as a brand, I now have to grow myself as a brand because it's the only way that these companies in my industry will now take me serious.
0: Interesting. So back
1: to the goal you were saying, one of your goals, I'm curious how that weaves in.
2: So, yeah, I've actually... um, been very methodical about doing this and it's something i slowly geared up towards not like an overnight thing but slowly kind of test the waters with and basically i've already had a cartoon character based off me it was an easy way to throw us in without it kind of taken away from the show and i figured i'd just lean heavier into that cartoon character that is me just go with the same name as me and as we started to pull away from the yamama jokes when explore the characters, it's natural for us to say, well, the show's made within a studio, just like we do things. So we now have this animated studio that's actually set up as a setting in the show's universe. We acknowledge that I am a creator-producer of the show within the universe. Uh, we acknowledge that Bertie is a talent of the show within the universe that works for me. And we utilize that universe and that settings as a way to weave me in as an influencer, as a person that fans to be aware of, but also to add value and to add storytelling and conflicts and things of that nature that allows us to push the characters further.
0: Has that helped your numbers sort of playing into that algorithm?
2: Well, so there's a few different aspects to this question. Uh, What I will say, it has helped out the fan base a lot to retain a stronger attention. I will say that my name is utilized and said a lot more across social media than it used to be. My Instagram numbers are looking really solid. Yeah. So the numbers are definitely increasing. I wouldn't say it's from an algorithm perspective, though. I would say it's more so from a fandom perspective.
0: As such a private person, though, is there a level of discomfort with having to put yourself out there in this sort of way?
2: Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. There's, I mean, this last week when I was visiting family, uh, my brother had mentioned a fact about me, something about me that I never told anybody. I was very confused on where he got that information from and he pulled it up and it was from a website on the internet that had somehow figured out this information through some sort of public record or something. And it kind of freaked me out and it made me realize that, okay, there are websites that are keeping track of who I'm dating. Uh, There are websites that are keeping track of my net worth. There are websites that are keeping track of aspects of my life that I didn't know people were trying to keep track of. Huh.
1: But it sounds like through the animation and through having this studio set up within the story, you're able to, in a way, detach from putting yourself out there so personally. Or, or
0: recreate the narrative, it seems, which is kind of cool.
2: Exactly. And anything I do put out there that is of myself on camera, uh, whether that's photo or a video, it's honestly still a parody of myself. As some people will say, you know, Zach, you're like a you're like a, a douchebag parody. You're like an anti bag. Like obviously you're not taking yourself too serious here, but you're doing things that deucey people would do, but you're adding a twist to them to make them funny. So for example, there's like photos of me with women in lingerie, but I'm also wearing lingerie with them. <laughs> and it's done as like a humorous thing. Or me smoking weed. And then the camera pans and you got a bunch of actual Ninja Turtles, like the full-blown costumes for the movie, dancing in my kitchen. Um, so it, it's, it's ways that I try to weave it in and make it obvious that's not meant to be taken serious while also adding aspects of my personality into it.
1: Do you see continuing on this platform or expanding into wider, different types of platforms beyond digital new media? and short form?
2: Yes, I will do that, but not at the expense of sacrificing my team's security or anything of that nature. I have spoken on panels before where fans have asked questions, you know, why don't you just try to make a show with like Adult Swim? And the reality is, unless you get a, um, a development deal, if you're just sitting there pitching, developing pitch bibles and, and, throwing that around and everything else. You could spend a lot of time on a project that would not necessarily pull any money right away. And then if you want to make that work, you really have to devote all your time into it. And technically I could do that. I mean, technically I could retire today off the money I have and then spend my time focusing on trying to create a project like that. But my team has been with me for nine to 10 years. They are creatives. They are YouTubers just like I am. And I always promise that myself, not necessarily anything I Promise to them, but they understand where I'm coming from. But I always promise myself that if I was going to retire, my uh, my core team would have to be in that position to retire as well. And to do that and make sure that they're fully utilized, uh, I have to keep working on the productions I have today, develop new productions that utilize their new skills and techniques that they develop over the years. And if I can take something to TV, it's only within the position of them being attached to that project as well, or Or in a certain financial situation where we can just focus on a project like that. Do you see yourself
0: creating a new business model in terms of media? If the current system's not working, or if you find yourself having to look out for other people, do you see something else in the future, sort of changing the game, recreating what's currently out there?
2: I would say that we always do that. For example, we're getting much more heavily into music uh, than we used to. We did have a music aspect. Component to our company years ago that was involved with my co-producer, co-creator, and business partner at the time. After he exited the company and I bought him out, I focused on the areas that I knew that I could focus on. And now we're starting to dive back into this world of music because we recognize that A, it's cheaper to make your own music than it is to licensed music. B, creating your own music actually creates a hyperactivation within the fan base. C, it brings in a new revenue stream. And D, that opens up a whole new revenue model and business model component to the studio. So yeah, I could start up a new company. I could explore new things entirely from the ground up. But I find that when you spend 10 years creating so many assets, that you don't necessarily have to be an animation studio. You just have to know how to flip those assets into a new project and evolve the studio into the current digital age where you can still make a cartoon, but there's still other things that you can do to explore new business models within the studio.
1: What do you think of NFTs? Any interest in that?
2: We actually just uh, launched NFTs today.
1: Oh, congratulations.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we have three partnerships in development with three different large platforms. Two of them we haven't announced yet, but the one that we have announced and the one that we launched today is with Known Origin. Known Origin specializes in curating specialized artists or artists of certain uh, notoriety. And for us to be a part of their platform, even though they're not the largest platform, they're a little bit more boutique, it definitely turns a lot of heads in the NFT industry. And it shows that we're taking this trend very serious, not necessarily as a cash grab, but more so how do we find a new audience? How do we find a community? How do we develop a community with our community? And more so, it shows that we're looking at the NFT space with a 10-year-plus mindset.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What do you think is the future for digital creators? Well, that's a big question, but I think it kind of dies back down to this philosophy that I've always had. I feel like a lot of digital creators will come in and create with the idea that they just want to be a creative. I think if you want to be a true digital creator, you have to understand multi-facets of the industry, multi-facets of running a business. And if you really want to be a pioneer and, and and last, not necessarily a pioneer, but have a career path that lasts longer than 18 months, which is the average career path for a digital content creator once they hit their peak, you you have to always understand how to reinvent yourself, how to take what you have and push it further. So I think the future for digital creators is being digital pioneers, being digital business owners, being digital innovators, things of that nature while still creating content.
1: So you recently waged a very public war against tech giants like YouTube, Facebook, and other big platforms. Tell us why.
2: Well, well first off, I wouldn't necessarily use this term, but a lot of people will. And I'll say this term just for context. A lot of people would refer to me as a savant meaning that I have an ability that comes out of my quote-unquote autism. In that case, I have this ability to see data in a way that most people are not able to unless they get down into the actual numbers. So a lot of consulting firms in my industry will actually bring me in as a consultant, consult for them so that I can point them in the direction of new findings that maybe my brain sees, but they haven't quite figured out on paper just yet. So with this brain that I have, I recognize that there's a lot of weird stuff that these platforms are doing that they try to say is their algorithm, but it's really not. Or if it is their algorithm, they're not being honest about what the algorithm actually is. Mm -hmm. So with Facebook, I know for a fact that Facebook put artificial code into my Facebook page to stop it from growing so fast when it exploded from 75,000 likes to 4 million likes within four months back in, I think, wow. 2013 or 14. I know this because, again, I, I've seen them. First off, I've seen them take away my verification. Uh, we got it back, but they took away my verification at the time. And then I recognized that our organic reach was cut down by 90%. Now, of course, or, Facebook has played around with organic reach a lot. So that has slowly dropped over the years. But regardless of what that organic reach was for everybody, ours was 10% of that.
0: What was their reason for taking away the verification?
2: I don't think it was them wanting to take away the verification. I think it was the result of a code that they put into the page to limit our reach. And the reason they did that was we were growing too fast for their platform. Okay. Um, I was
0: wondering if they contacted you and said there was no a reason for it, like you would violate it or anything like that, even
2: if they made it up, you know? So no. what is
1: the risk of growing too fast for their platform?
2: So yeah, they never gave us a reason, though I did get some off the record conversations from some senior engineers, the type of engineers that are typically retired, but Facebook pays them so much money, they come out of retirement. So they have gave me some indications that basically Facebook doesn't like when something grows super fast and it basically uh, isn't something that they can slow down or that they can manipulate or that they can have power over. And you see this a lot with different platforms across the board, uh, to be honest with you. And I can kind of slightly understand it, though I do disagree with it. If you are a content creation platform, you want to make sure that you have the power over the content creators and the content creators doesn't have power over you. So if you're a content creator that can truly reach your audience without limitations of the algorithm, and you can amass a media empire through their platform, you could very well build something bigger than a platform and take it with you. And that scares them. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a lot of different aspects to this. I mean, what YouTube does is different than what Facebook does. But yeah, that's, kind of that, that's what I would say would answer your question.
1: So what is it that you're doing to confront this and speak out against this?
2: I do a few different things. One, I let them know that I know
1: mm-hmm.
2: what they know. And they tried to deny it, but then I sew everything to them, and they start to go back and they start to re-edit a lot of their legal stuff to reflect this information that I' now put out there. I'm also I can't go into full details, but I do have family members that work in key positions in government that I made them aware of these situations as well. I believe it's a bipartisan issue. I believe what has to happen now has to be done from a legislative standpoint. I think it's in my personal opinion that it's not that these platforms shouldn't have algorithms or have the ways that they want to distribute these content, but they need to be transparent about their algorithms. And the reason that you have to be transparent is the government should be aware of how other governments and other countries and foreign adversaries are not only aware of these algorithms, but know how to manipulate these algorithms. And if the government's not aware of what these algorithms look like, then they can't be aware of how bad actors are taking over social media and manipulating it.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, we hear so much about the censorship on Facebook, for instance. Just going back to this idea of the future of digital creators, can you be independent anymore? Can you have a platform to say what you feel, say what you think? Or it sounds are like
1: we... you are though.
0: Well, well, I mean, you've been there for 10 years and I mean, you've been able to go around the system and understand what the system is but the person that's starting out today are they truly independent will they have the voice that you had that you were able to create
2: no unless you unless you lean into like an extreme side of things and you can radiate with an audience through a sense of passion or anger which i think invites more dangerous content creators right and i'm very much aware of a law known as Section 230, that basically is what protects these websites because it's a law that allows them to say, look, we're not an editorial entity. We're just putting out content. But the thing is, is I know for a fact that Google is using editorialized data from Wikipedia to create context around all the keywords that are used on YouTube. And the way they're doing it is without Wikipedia's knowledge or at least of my current understanding, Wikipedia wasn't aware of it. And it's also something that can be manipulated and utilized in certain ways. And when you have something like that being used against you, it's very difficult to come out as an independent voice because you're not just something that's trying to fit within an algorithm. You're now something that's trying to fit within an algorithm that's using information from a completely different entity that can be manipulated through PR and editors on this entity. And so you, it is a big uphill battle. Right,
1: right. So when you talked about going into music now, is this kind of a new dream for you? I mean, if you could do anything, is it singing or starting to compose or play an instrument of your own? Just curious what your biggest dream might be.
2: Well, it's, it's hard to say what my biggest dream would be because I do look at things 40 years ahead of time. And the life that I see 40 years from now is not the life I'm living today. But I will say that my next big passion is music. There's a genre of rap that has really emerged over the last few years that I refer to as goofy white rap. There's a bunch of artists known as like Baby No Money, uh, CEO at Business.net, Young Gravy, Tiny Meat Gang, things like these artists who are white, And they, they love rap. They love the music of it. But when you listen to the lyrics, it's all comedy and parody of itself. And that's what really radiates for me. And it was something that clicked in my brain about six months ago and was encouraged by my team and by my friends to actually explore and do. And I find that to be a great stress relief. I find it to be fun, natural, natural. I don't have to put a lot of effort into it. I mean, I do put effort, but I don't force it. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I want to explore a lot more over the coming years.
1: So you're actually wrapping yourself. Sounds like. Yes. What fun.
2: <laughs> it is it, fun.
1: We're excited to hear and see. So at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw, which is six questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. Alex, you want to take it away?
0: Okay, here we go. What are you listening to right now? Listen to you guys talk.
1: <laughs> Favorite cartoonist.
0: Chuck Jones. Favorite YouTube channel besides your own.
2: Comics Explain.
1: Favorite movie.
2: Hmm. You know, I like the Loki TV series. That one was really good.
0: It's like a movie, very cinematic.
2: Felt like um, a movie. Yeah.
0: Most underrated artist
2: myself
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like it <laughs> favorite guilty pleasure
2: being a single man uh Houston this is Zach James just out of curiosity uh, will the condoms protect my dick against some space bitches alright I'll be on standby working the account made a hundred thousand sitting on the counts and bought some grief Crossin' Judy and Wanna make a wet sun Dude, did you hear that? You are good to go. We're good to go. 626 co-pilot is stitch. Blasting off quick, leaving you in a ditch. Curveball bitch, but I'm talking about my dick. Can't wait to meet these hot. Hot space chicks, hot space chicks were their hot space tits. Hot space chicks were their hot space hips. Hot space, hot, space hot space chicks were their hot space lips. Hot space chicks on my hot space dick. Working the accountants, made a hundred thousand, sitting on the counts and bought some booty bouncing, crushing duty debts and wanna. on vacation Space money weed every day of the week Always getting high, continue to peak Faded, animated, dimensional freak Smoking fat blunt Drinking whiskey nights <laughs> Yeah, you're right With six hands you can grab six space tits Man, I cannot wait to suck some space nips. Just imagine man, you're like right there and you're sucking on a nip and you're like, what is that? Oh, that's a piercing. And you realize that is a new discovery. You're the first man to suck on nippotanium, a metal that cannot be found on Earth. But you gotta remember, man, even when you're dealing with these alien bitches, you are always out of this world.
1: Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Pod, And subscribe to us on Apple,
0: Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld.
0: Music is by Voidcore.
1: And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles.